A little, um, a little curiosity question to begin today. How many of you, by chance, every year at some point during the year, have an annual physical exam with your doctor? Anybody here in the physical exam business? Oh, some of you are getting a little long in the tooth now, and maybe you should be looking how you're, you're doing. Well, every spring, well, actually not spring, more end of January, for probably the last 20 years, um, I have gone dutifully uh, to my primary care physician to have my physical exam. And of course, before that, you have to go take that full battery of blood work, you know. They want all that uh, done so the doctor can look at your blood work and see how you're doing from one year to the next. And um, so I will say that all things considered, I have passed with flying colors. I mean, I still am standing here after all, so uh, I, I guess I must have done halfway decent. But um, I, I have a problem uh, in my blood work that showed up for, well, it's actually been a problem for the last three or four years, and it's totally the opposite of what you would expect. Many of you, as you've gotten older, probably your doctor said you got to pass on the salt shaker. You got too much sodium. Well, I have the reverse problem. The doctor said, never pass the salt shaker. Your sodium levels are low, and you need to try to get them back up. Now, why this is so, I have no idea. But I'm, I'm glad because I do like salt. Uh, you know, there's a very little that I uh, uh, pass the salt shaker on. But we, we, you know, have this thing of, um, you know, giving something an inspection, seeing if it's working all right. Maybe you have your air conditioner at your house tuned up. Of course, you have to get your car tuned up. We always want to inspect and see if everything is working okay so that we can prevent problems from occurring down the line. Now, let's take this to the spiritual level and ask ourselves, when was the last time, as the scripture reading brought out, you took some time of introspection to examine yourself to see how you're doing in the faith? Maybe you don't want to face that question. I'm going to help you face it today. title of this sermon, if you keep track of such things, is examine yourself. Now, you may be thinking we're going to go to that scripture in Corinthians connected with the Lord's Supper or the Passover, you know, where Paul was telling Corinth to examine themselves because apparently they had a lot of wrong things going on. But I'm not going there. I'm going to take you instead to the book of Colossians, to chapter 3, and we're going to take the first part of this chapter. And in my Bible, uh, this is uh, kind of entitled, Living the New Life. Because, I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. We are born again. We become new creatures. We live a new life. Uh, we put on, uh, you know, the, the spiritual uh, fruits the, that God's Holy Spirit brings us. And I found that the first several verses of this chapter just are excellent in helping all of us look in a mirror and say, okay... What are the essentials of the Christian faith, and how am I doing? 
So let's consider. Now I'm reading out of the, the new um, Living Translation, a little bit more, um, shall we say, Americanized version. So if yours is different, I, I think the same intent will be there in all the verses. But just if you wonder where I'm reading from, uh, I've got the New Living Translation. All right, so he, he makes an assumption to begin with. He says, this is the Apostle Paul writing to this church at Colossae. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ. Now, what do we do physically that pictures being raised to a new life with Christ? Do I have a volunteer? There's a ceremony we go through. It is called baptism. We are, the old man is buried in the water, and we are taken up out of the water, symbolic, as it says here, being raised to a new life with Christ. Now let's see what he says about that new life to begin with. He said, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now, when you set your sights on something, I, I'm familiar with the terminology of, uh, of shooting a rifle. I grew up on a farm outside of Modesto, you know, down the valley a little bit, and uh, my dad was an avid uh, uh, shooter. fact is, he even loaded his own shells and all that. And I remember we had this great big uh, box filled with dirt out in the middle of uh, our orchard, and he put targets on it, and you would set your sights, hopefully on the bullseye, and seeing how close and how many you could, you could hit that bullseye with. So we're familiar with, with examples like that, but he said to set your sights on the realities of heaven. Now I want you to think just for a moment, what is the reality of heaven, if you're going to set your sights on it? Give me anything that comes off the top of your head. What is the reality of heaven? I'm going to help you. Contrast that with planet earth, which is temporary and passing away. Just depends on how many years it's going to take. But I think all of us are enough familiar with science to know that there are these half-lives and they continue and, and pretty soon the whole thing just kind of goes to nothing, I guess, or absorbed or whatever it does. But life is not meant to be permanent. But there is a reality in heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at the right hand of God that is permanent and eternal. But I don't know about you, Dan, you got a comment. Quick. That's all part of it. That's the reality of heaven, the life that God has lived in union with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity. Now, I like to let, let contrast that for a moment with the reality that is planet Earth where we live. Uh, how many of you bother to listen to the news anymore? Is anybody sick of hearing about President Trump squabbling with the news media about this scandal and the other scandal and this guy and that guy and somebody else has been granted immunity because they're going to tattletale on this and that and something else. I am telling you there are days I could just scream. I said, has it come to this? And apparently it has. Yeah, don't hire the lawyers. Keep them out of it. But the point being is, 
We deal in a reality that is frustrating, that is maddening. We all look in the mirror and we get older and older and older and nobody escapes. Maybe the aches and pains that begin to pile up. You know, we've got to do all kinds of things to get the old body going. And my poor wife, you know, she, she's got some bad feet. She has to put special braces and stuff and bandages on her feet. And we all have to take care of our teeth. And maybe some of your teeth come out and you have to put them in the little cup, you know, with the, uh, what, what do they call that stuff? Um, uh, well, I don't know what it is. Some fizzy stuff, you know, that gets your dentures clean. Mine are locked in permanently. I don't have all my teeth, but the ones I've got, I can't take them out, you know, that are, or that are of the implant variety and all that. So God says if you're going to walk this walk, you've got to make a regular habit of setting your sights on the reality of heaven and realizing what we have here is temporary and we are qualified for something different, something better, something more permanent, something without all the troubles we have here. So he says in verse 2, <coughs> excuse me, following up this theme, think about the things of heaven, not the things of this earth. Now I got to tell you that is hard. It's hard for two reasons. Number one, it's hard because we live on planet Earth and the distractions don't end. I mean, we do have to get sleep, we have to pay the bills, we have to fix the food, we have to keep the car running. And if we pretty much take care of our life, well, that's okay because that means your relatives and neighbors and everybody else who are having their troubles can enlist you to bear their burdens, right? And do I hear a hearty amen about what relatives and neighbors and friends can do to your life? And you wonder, why am I getting involved? You know, take care of yourself. But, you know, uh, at any rate. But a second reason we have a trouble doing this is because I don't know what heaven is like. I've never been there. That is a spiritual realm. That's where I hope to go. I get glimpses of it. I can read about it a little bit in scripture. You can go back to the book of Revelation and you can see that John was taken up into a heavenly vision and he tried to describe what was there, a whole bunch of which I have trouble, you know, picturing all these spirit beings and these angels and these cherubim and seraphim and what all that's like and, and why did God create them that way and, and th that's hard. But the problem is, if you just think solely about this earth, you're going to get bogged down in a big hurry. And this is what Paul was saying. We've got to lift ourselves up. Think about the things of heaven. Make it a regular part of your day, not just the things of planet earth. <clears throat> Going ahead. He said, for you died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. In many ways, a Christian is a schizophrenic. You've heard of a split personality? Now that is not a desirable trait, according to psychiatrists and those in the mental health profession. But really, we, we have a split personality. Hopefully, if we're converted, there is one that we have to deal with things here. We have no choice. And we realize that we are all bound to the flesh. We make mistakes. We commit sins. That's one reality. But your real life, 
the one that Jesus has redeemed, that is hidden with Christ in God. And that is the one that is going to shine like the stars forever and ever and ever. And, and, and that is where your hope and your eternity resides. Now, going on with this same theme, it says, And when Christ, who is your life or our life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. How many of you still pray at all thy kingdom come? I don't just mean in a perfunctory way, you know, the Lord's prayer. I, I mean really earnestly pray, Lord, thy kingdom come. I, I think in the earlier days of our denomination, when we were more fixed on prophetic prophecy, when is the end time, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, when is the kingdom going to come, when's Jesus going to come back? And I can remember when I was a student in Ambassador College having endless speculations on when Jesus would return and trying to figure out elaborate chronologies from Daniel or Zechariah or Revelation, which all had one thing in common. They all ended up wrong, <laughs> along with a whole bunch of others of Christianity down through the hundred years of its history. So we do want Jesus to return because when he returns, it is going to be revealed what our glorious body is going to be like. I can only imagine it now. In fact, is there, there's a very beautiful song. I'm trying to remember the gentleman who sang it, but uh, I can only imagine is the name of it. And he tries to imagine what will it be like when he, when, when, when he sees Jesus, will he shout for joy? Will he cry? Will he fall down and worship? And then he goes on, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Well, this again is, is what I try to do, to imagine what it's going to be like <clears throat> when Christ is revealed to the whole world and we can share in his glory. Now, I... I I, I confess there's kind of a perverse side to me where you have this world that by and large ignores Jesus. That's superstition. That's what those dumb, naive Christians believe. And, and do you ever have this thought that wells up in your mind that you just can't wait till Jesus returns and rubs their noses in it? Come on now, play along with me a little bit. You, you never wanted to hear some of these philosophers that deny there's even a God. God is dead, you know. Uh, the, the, the Adolf Huxleys and the other ones, you know, that have come. This Nietzsche fella in Germany that proclaimed that God was dead. I remember it made the cover of Time magazine like we could will God out of existence because he doesn't fit us or something. And, and uh, no, when Christ is revealed to the whole world, then we're going we're gonna to see, yes, reality is here. All right, so Paul says, in light of these things, in light of this heavenly reality, in light of what is coming, in light of Jesus who is going to be revealed, verse 5, we have something that each of us are to do. <clears throat> so here it is. Put to death the sinful, earthly things 
lurking within you. Lurking within you. In other words, they're always ready with the proper stimulus, if you let down your guard, to come out of the shadows and to present their ugly head. And, and, and I find that every day is a battle to keep them there. What do they look like? Well, he says, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires, and don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Now, he, he isolates here two very obvious things that preoccupy most of the world. Sex and money. Okay? I, I mean, you, you just look at the books, you look at the entertainment, uh, you, you look at the songs, you listen to the words, you listen to the lyrics. It seems like everybody is trying to either grab more, as in a greedy person, or, or they, they, they are just off in whatever perversion from God's original intent, wherever their sexual, you know, um, desires take them. And, and Paul said, that's the reality of this world. But he said, you, as the followers of Jesus, are to put to death the things that are sinful. Now, in many ways, it's easier said than done. Uh, but that, that, that is, you know, that's the battle. That's the Christian fight. That's the purpose. Now, there's something in verse 6 that... I don't hear much focused on in Christian circles anymore, and, and maybe it's because of a reaction to how many hellfire and damnation sermons used to be preached in so many revivalist churches and maybe that are still out there, and we emphasize grace and God's forgiveness and what Jesus has done for us. But in verse 6 it says, because of these sins that we just mentioned, the anger of God is coming. In other words, there's going to be a day of reckoning. There will be a judgment. Everybody is going to be called into an account. We're going to stand before the judgment throne of Christ. Now granted, in the long run, I am thankful I am covered by his blood and I am a recipient of his grace. But God does not take sin lightly. He, he does not just kind of push it over into the corner, you know, like you're sweeping your floor and you don't want to use the dustpan, so you push it over in the corner hoping nobody will notice. You don't ever do that, do you? No, I don't either, but it's a good analogy anyway. Just shove it over there in the corner. Well, because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. And, and it's going to be called into an account. Now, now, here is another little slice of reality in verse 7. He said, you, and he's addressing this to all the Christians, all the followers of Jesus there at Colossae, and all of us indirectly get to partake of this. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. So we, we can't get all self-righteous with God and say, well, I'm above all this, and I've been redeemed from all that, and I don't do that anymore. But as Paul was quick to remind this church, you used to do these things when you were still a part of this world. 
And and I remember when I was a uh, uh, a teenager uh, growing up before the calling of God came my way. In fact, is I had a little reminder of my former days last night when my wife and I went to a football game to see our grandson's team play football. He he's uh, plays for a team up in Rockland named Whitney, and they were playing a team from Auburn named Placer. And so we had to drive to Auburn from where we live to see this football game. And we made a very strategic error in where we chose to sit. I mean, you know, first of all, the visitor's side was very small in the seating capacity they had. And by the time all these rabid Whitney fans showed up, of which we were, you know, you, you were literally fighting for any place to sit. <clears throat> so we, we found this place to sit on, on a front row bleacher, and it would have been okay except it somehow turned out to be the congregational point of a bunch of teenage girls. And, and these girls seem to have no presence on somebody might be sitting behind them wanting to watch because all they wanted to do was giggle and compare notes and look on their smartphone and laugh and primp and whatever else. And they were just, for lack of a better term to me, and I know I'm 71 and I'm prejudiced, but they were just a bunch of silly teenagers with a bunch of nonsense going on. I came here to watch a football game. I felt more than once. But I said, no, don't do this. You're going to open up Pandora's box. You do not want to go that way. I felt more than once, ladies, why don't you just have a seat and watch the game? But I didn't think they would take it too kindly. And so I kept my mouth shut. But I, I yes, but I used to be that way in my own way. You know, there, there was a time when I was interested basically in rock and roll music, sports, and girls. And the order varied from, you know, whatever. But that was my life. Jesus was nowhere really to be found in my life, even though, even though I attended church faithfully every Sunday morning at the Methodist Church with my family, as I had done since the time I had been born, but not much of it stuck, because I was interested in other things, until, until God determined enough of this nonsense, we're going to call you out of this world into something different. And when God's spirit came and my eyes were open to my sins and the way of life that I was living and I began to read the scriptures and God began to make in me a new creation, then every priority I had began to change. And that's the process as God says, to examine yourself. How much of that change has really taken place? Or instead of you used to do these things, are you still doing them? And he gives a little review again in verse 7. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But verse 8, now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language just to name a few. You know, you can add far more to the list, but that kind of kind of gets things going. 
Now, hopefully my wife would attest to the fact that my anger and rage are less than they used to be. But in my younger days, um, I had a, a, an associate minister who used to go visiting with me, and I would get mad at something that was happening somewhere in life, in the news or whatever, and he said, you're the only person I've ever run across who on a moment's notice could attack the white line of the highway. I would find some reason to get angry, even at the white line, that separated the two lanes of traffic on a highway. Well, over the years, I, I, I hopefully I, I have changed, and, and any momentary anger and rage I might, uh, might exhibit is few and far between and of much shorter duration than it used to be. And I don't know whether I'm just getting old and I don't have the energy for it anymore, or I've seen the futility in it and what difference does it make, or let's give me a little credit and just say maybe God's spirit is a little stronger in me and I'm more converted than I used to be. But I, I'm, I'm getting there. But Paul says as a reminder, get rid of it. And verse 9 don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. Don't lie to each other. Now, I forget where my wife and I were watching this. It was, it was on television. We were seeing this little clip. And this, this happens all the time, and I've been caught in this trap before myself. And it's a no-win situation for a man who either has a girlfriend or is married. So in this particular clip, the wife apparently had, I don't know whether she'd gotten a new hairdo or a new dress or changed her makeup or what she had done, but she looked at her husband and she said, well, honey, how do I look? Do you know what? That, that, that is, the, the man is now in an impossible situation because no matter how you look, even if you don't look all that well, he's got to at least lie. But the woman won't believe him if she even thinks there's any insincerity at all. And so my wife sometimes has asked me that question, and I get this sweet little smile on my face. And I say, oh, dear, you look incredibly beautiful. And she looks at me, and she says, oh, bull. She said, that's not a right answer. And I said, well, what do you want me to say? You know, what do you want me to say? Well, uh, you know, Paul says, don't lie to each other. But I, I sometimes I think in this life, at least in little white lies, we just almost have to lie a little bit to keep the peace. Because can you imagine what this world would be like if everybody just said what was brutally apparent, you know, and, and they walk up to somebody like me and said, you know what, you're looking old. You're losing your hair. You got age spots. You got wrinkles. Your chin's sagging a little bit. You're walking with half a limp most of the time. Man, did anybody ever tell you you're just old? Now, I wouldn't want to be, you know, but if we're going to be brutally honest, all those things that I just said are true. But we, we like to be nice, you know. Let's speak nice things about each other. But I think what Paul meant is don't lie to each other because you've got some nefarious agenda. You're trying to cheat somebody, or you're trying not to, to pay back what you owe, or you're, you're, you're trying to you know, tell people you've done things that you really haven't. 
Paul said, get rid of that old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Don't go that way anymore. But he's going to contrast that. Now this is what you ought to be doing. Put on your new nature. See, it's something you literally have to put on. It's not inherent with us. It has to be put on. And be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. And that's what, of course, life is like. It's a continual process of renewal. You know, you, you, yesterday's righteousness doesn't do you much good for today. Just because you were a good boy or girl yesterday does not guarantee if you don't renew and you don't draw near and you don't allow the Spirit of God to work in your life, no guarantee that yesterday's righteousness will translate into today's. And it says in verse 11, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, it doesn't matter where you came from or what your roots are or what your gender is, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. And you know, that's, that's kind of a hard thing to do because I, I think all of us can't help but judge our fellow human beings on planet Earth. And we have pecking orders of, 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 you know, the rich and the beautiful and the famous, or maybe people we admire and people we don't, people we'd like to run into to have a conversation with, and people we hope won't see us, you know. We, we, we all play that kind of stuff. But Paul says, look, all of us, every last one of us, is in Christ. He is in all of us, and that's all that matters. So verse 12, let's get down to the bottom line. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves. Okay, now we, with past tense, right? Since. It's already happened. You're a part of it. You got called whether you like it or not. <laughs> okay? So since God chooses you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's a hard agenda, but it's, it's, it's what works. And he says, make allowance for each other's faults. And forgive anyone who offends you. And remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I mean, you know, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Yet he came, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, ascended to be with his Father, to be our high priest. And since he extends his forgiveness and love to us, we have absolutely no reasons why we cannot do the same to others. And if they do things against us and they offend us, forgive them anyway, because that's the example that Jesus set for us. It's a difficult life. But you know, I, I, I love every now and then to look at some of these plain statements from Scripture and ask myself, if everybody on planet Earth lived by what we just read, 
what kind of a world would it be? Can you imagine a world where every human being practiced tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? Can you imagine what kind of a world would it be if we all made allowances for each other's faults? That everybody forgave whoever offended them? What would that world look like? I can't imagine that kind of a world. I ought to think more about it. I ought to think more as we were told in the beginning about the realities of heaven. But trying to project that on the mess that I see all around me and what I see portrayed in the news, it is just a hard thing to do. But if you do that, and, and going on in verse four, 14, above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And, and, and it does. Love unites. Sin separates. The more you love, the less you sin, the more harmony is present. So that, that's again the goal. And going on, he says, let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Live in peace and be thankful. Whatever it is that you might have. Now, I don't know how you start your day, but I have a, a sun porch. It's, it's an all-weather sun porch. Three sides of it are, are glass. And it has sliding windows with screens on them so you can let the air in in the summertime and get the cool air in and close them up in the winter and so on. And I love to go out there to start my day, generally around sunrise. And I love to look around and just simply be thankful. To look out the window and to see, not so much right now, but in the height of the season, I have this wall of oleanders, beautiful white blossoms. And I look out at this wall of white blossoms and thank God for the beauty of his creation. I savor my cup of coffee and thank God for coffee. I thank God for the peace in the morning, for the birds that sing, even the wretched squirrels. They're worth saying thanks because they can provide some marvelous entertainment. When two of them start chasing each other around the circumference of this pine tree I have in my backyard, and it's just an absolutely riot to watch these squirrels chase each other. But so many things. God says if you, if you just focus on the things and be thankful for them, life is so much more enriching. And so finishing off this section about examining ourselves and seeing the way we should live, he said, let the message about Christ in all its richness Fill your lives. But that takes a conscientious effort for that to happen. You've got to study it, meditate on it, think about it, talk about it. That's the only way it happens. And it says, teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom that he gives. And you know, it's a true statement. We all have something to teach and counsel each other about. And it says to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. 
Now, you know, something that I've incorporated from time to time in my own devotionals in the morning, uh, I'm a fan of a, a man who's been dead probably 50 or 60 years now. His name was A.W. Tozer. And he was very prominent in the 40s and the early 50s into the early 60s before he died. And he, he turns out some wonderful daily devotionals. And I was reading one of his devotionals one morning, and he talked about how he had this hymnal of all the great hymns of the church. And how instead of just praying to God, he actually got out this hymnal, opened it up to one of the great hymns that he knew and loved, and sang a hymn to God. Not, who cares if it's not on key or whatever, very few of us can sing that well a cappella, but he sang a hymn to God. And you know, if you go back and you examine some of the old classic hymns, you will find the gospel message in every one of them. They're not like some of the Johnny One Note hymns that have come along of late, where you just sing the same words over and over again. I noticed in the four verses of almost every one of these old hymns, the first verse will talk about the Creator God. The second verse will generally talk about Jesus and how he's died for us. The third verse will talk about the Spirit and how it enriches us to live this life. And the fourth verse will talk about the coming kingdom. And so you have the whole plan of God from the creation to Jesus to the coming of the Spirit to the second coming, new heaven and new earth. And one after another of these hymns keep emphasizing the basic gospel message and in one hymn, you have the message of God. You, you, you just hardly can find that in anything that's been, uh, shall we say, of, of recent years. But nonetheless, sing some psalms to yourself and to God as well. And then the last verse I'm going to cover today in verse 17. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So as in another place it talks about all of us are ambassadors for God, ambassadors for Christ. We represent his way of life. So then Paul says, well then, live up to that. Whatever you do, whatever you say, do it as if you're representing your Lord Jesus and give thanks to God that he gave you a calling now and gave you the opportunity to do it. So, wonderful words. Uh, we can look at these words and we can examine ourselves and we can think how we're doing. And uh, again, just keep in mind this one positive note, that wherever we may fall short, that's okay, because the blood of Jesus Christ makes it all right and we come out winners in the long run. Join me in prayer. Gracious God, we want to thank you again for the wonders of your word. Thank you for these um, words from the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossia about what's important to you, about what our priorities ought to be, about how our lives ought to be lived and how they must not be lived. 
And Father in heaven, by your spirit, empower us and help us to be those representatives of Jesus that we read about here. And uh, Father in heaven above, we want to do all this to your honor and glory. And Father, also, as we conclude our service, we sit down and have our meal and our fellowship together. Bless our time spent together as well. And we thank you in Christ's holy name. Amen. The world today is a challenging environment for Christian believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Looking for answers? Grace Communion International local churches in Fairfield, Santa Rosa, and Modesto offers a comforting environment for Christians in search of spiritual growth and development. Contact a local ministry. Attend their local GCI churches at the times listed on your screen.